0: From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd pleasing gig speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1 800 Xfinity, or visit today. Restrictions apply. Actual speed vary and not guaranteed. Welcome to the Weekend Archives of Weird Darkness. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Henry Lucas and Otis Toole are either the worst serial killers in American history or the worst liars. They were a pair of star-crossed lovers who traveled across America, murdering, raping, burning, and even cannibalizing everyone who crossed their paths. And if Henry Lucas is to be believed, they killed thousands. It's one of crime's strangest and most unnerving stories. The truth is as murky as it comes, but the things we know for sure are twisted enough to turn anyone's stomach. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And Be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you're already a fan of the show, please help me spread Weird Darkness around the world by sharing a link to the episode on Facebook Twitter, Reddit, and your other social media sites. You can also email or text a few friends and tell them about the podcast. Doing these things is a huge help to me and the show and thank you in advance for doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Of all of the many strange things that one can see out on the road at night, one that is certain to startle anyone is a car blinking out of existence in an instant right before one's eyes. And there are stories coming in from all around the world. A family experiences strange occurrences all at the same time while in the car, but even stranger, they weren't all in the same car or in the same location. Ghosts can terrorize, but can they also protect? In 1990, Danny Rowling left University of Florida students cowering over the course of three days and murdered five in the process. April 26, 1865 – In New York, a photograph was taken that became the most controversial photo of President Lincoln ever taken. Birthed from troubled pasts, Henry Lucas and Otis Toole were lovers and deranged serial killers whose crimes would change American laws and TV. We begin there first. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Henry Lucas and Otis Toole weren't just a murdering team. They were lovers. The two men met in 1976 at a soup kitchen and hit it off from the very first day. They moved fast. Before night fell, Lucas was back at Toole's home, sharing a bed with a man he had just met. Their lives had run along parallel lines. Both men were raised by abusive mothers who, frustrated that they didn't have daughters, had forced their sons to wear dresses. Both men had suffered horrible sexual trauma before they had turned 10, and by the time they had met, both men were murderers. Lucas served 10 years in prison for the murder of his own mother. She was a prostitute and when Lucas was a young boy, she would force him to sit in the room and watch while she serviced her customers. He lost an eye when he was 10 because she ignored an infection for so long that it had to be removed. She'd given him a miserable and hard life. By the time he'd reached puberty, Lucas was passing his spare time torturing animals and sexually assaulting his own brother. He was 23 years old when he killed her. The two had gotten into an argument and she physically confronted her son. She struck Lucas across the face and, in the heat of the moment, Lucas hit back. All I remember was slapping her alongside the neck, Henry Lucas would later tell the police. When I went to pick her up, I realized she was dead. Then I noticed that I had my knife in my hand and she had been cut. Tool's childhood was even harder. He was assaulted by almost every person he thought he could trust. His mother dressed him up as a girl, his older sister raped him before he had turned 10, and his father, the worst of them all, prostituted him to a neighbor when he was only five years old. Toole was already a serial arsonist and a suspect in four murder cases by the time he had met Lucas. His first victim was a traveling salesman who had tried to pick him up for sex. Toole lured the man out into the woods and then ran the man over with his own car. It was the first time he had ever killed anyone, but murder for Toole would become an addiction. Henry Lucas and Otis Toole traveled across 26 states, massacring as many people as they would find. They preyed upon hitchhikers, prostitutes, and migrant workers. They would pick them up and lure them off to a quiet area where they would be murdered. Murder, for them, was just a way for a young couple to bond. They would talk about it openly. Lucas claims he would even coach Toole on the best ways to get away with it. He was doing his crimes all one way, Lucas would later say. I started to correct him in his ways, in doing the crime where he wouldn't leave information. Their crimes were horrible. Often they would sexually assault their victims before they killed them and mutilate them beyond recognition afterward. Lucas would tell people they didn't feel the slightest moment of guilt, usually before joking about that time he'd crossed two state lines with someone's severed head in his back seat. Toole had a penchant for eating their bodies. It was something he and Lucas were caught talking about in a private conversation recorded over a prison phone. The way he talked about it, it sounded like something worth being nostalgic about. "'Remember how I liked to pour some blood out of them?' he asked Lucas. "'Some tastes like real meat when it's got barbecue sauce on it.'" The relationship fell apart when Lucas started seeing Tool's 12-year-old niece, Becky Powell. He would later say that he liked having someone young to look up to him. And there was no one better for that than a small child. He grabbed her, ran off, and left Tool alone. Tool was so upset about it that he allegedly killed nine people just to blow off steam. Lucas and young Becky Powell didn't make it very far, though. Powell would soon learn just how dangerous of a man Lucas really was. After the pair got into an argument while living on a ranch in Ringgold, Texas, there Lucas lured Becky out into an isolated field, murdered her, dismembered her body, and scattered the pieces in a nearby field. Then, for no reason other than a twisted urge, he lured the woman who owned the ranch out to the same field, killed her, and stuffed her body into a drainage pipe. It would bring an end to his rampage. Lucas was arrested shortly after, while Toole was separately imprisoned for burning a 64-year-old man alive. At long last, the killer couple was behind bars. Originally, Henry Lucas was only arrested for possession of a deadly weapon, but he was just too eager to incriminate himself for every crime he could. He talked about his murders to anyone who would listen, especially the police. Toole was a bit more reluctant but after Lucas started taking police officers on guided tours of their murder sites, he confessed. By his count, they had murdered 108 people, including Adam Walsh, the son of future America's Most Wanted host, John Walsh. Toole insisted he was the young boy's murderer, even arguing with the police when they didn't believe him, telling them, oh no, I killed him too, there's no doubt about that. Lucas ended up confessing to literally thousands of murders, although it is generally accepted that he wasn't telling the truth about all of them. As he would later admit, confessing to crimes just won him extra privileges. The police would drive him out to the scene of the crime and even let him get fast food on the way. For a man already on death row, confessing to murder was just a way to spend some time outside. There's no telling how much of Lucas and Tool's story is true. Their impact, though, endures. The police closed 213 cold cases based on their confession. Four films and two documentaries have been made about their sprees, including the critically acclaimed Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and Tool's alleged murder of Adam Walsh led to the creation of America's Most Wanted and a rewriting of countless child protection laws. Only three of their murders have been definitively connected to them, but regardless of how much truth there really is in their story, Lucas and Toole left a horrible scar on America, from which we still haven't recovered. Many unexplained mysteries center upon the roads and highways that stretch out across the land, from strange creatures lumbering out from the murk and unidentified flying objects to ghosts, phantom vehicles, and everything in between. One species of weird phenomena joining the ranks of odd things that one may encounter upon dark, lonely roads of the world is that of vehicles that just seem to, abruptly, vanish into nothingness, simply there one moment and gone the next. Cars vanishing into thin air without warning and right before people's eyes seems to be actually a more common phenomenon than one might at first think, if various reports are to be believed. Indeed, glitch-in-the-Matrix type threads quite often feature bizarre accounts of this happening, such as one report from a poster called PixelPants on one such forum on Reddit, who gives his or her experience thus. I was gathering up my dishes from lunch and saw a silver car being driven by a woman pull into my driveway. I was kind of surprised because a I live at the end of a street and b there's nowhere to turn around here. The minute I saw her pull into the driveway, I walked outside figuring she might be lost or just looking for a place to turn. It takes all of 10 seconds to walk from where I was to the outside. Even if by some odd chance she happened to back out of that narrow space, I would have seen her car continue down the road until she had enough of an area to back into and go straight but I walked outside and saw nothing. Absolutely nothing. She would have had to have had stunt driver-level skills to try and turn around and speed off that fast, and even then you'd have seen a trail of dust or smoke. I'm just a bit shaken and a bit freaked out by it all. And before you ask, I'm not on any hallucinogens or anything like that that would make me see something. I get plenty of sleep. It's just absolutely the weirdest thing. I've never seen this car or the woman driving it. My neighbor's out here mowing his lawn as nonchalant as can be. Just about as bizarre is an account relayed by another poster, who claims to have been on his way out of a one way exit from his place of employment when something very strange happened as he pulled up to the stop sign. He claims that this road was technically for right hand turns only but that he would sometimes illegally go straight ahead to enter a road just across the street if no one was looking. On this occasion, he says that a large black SUV suddenly pulled up behind him at the stoplight, and he describes what happened next thus. I get a bit nervous because I feel funny about people watching me ignore the right-turn-only sign sometimes I just end up taking it instead of going straight for lack of judgment. Nobody's coming from either side and I really contemplate just turning right, but last minute I just decided to go straight as I usually do and the car behind me could deal with it. So I hit the gas and start across the street and I see that the car is actually doing the same thing as me. Once we both are onto the road, it's a quiet road with mostly trees and maybe one or two houses further down, it's following behind me. I'm keeping my eyes on my rearview mirror at this car for whatever reason, and in all honesty I blinked and the car was gone. Broad daylight, no driveways that they could have turned into, just trees. I even looked to see if they had pulled over or something, but no, the car was nowhere in sight. It literally just disappeared. And trust me, I searched through every possibility in my head about where it could have gone and there's just no way. Weirdly enough, I don't actually remember seeing anyone in the driver's seat. I don't know if the window was tinted or what, but that's something that kind of baffles me as well. Off the very same thread is yet another unusual case, and this time the phenomenon was witnessed by two people. The witness, calling himself Worrell, told of his peculiar experience. So, I was driving home from school with my friend on my usual route and at one point we have to drive over a highway. There's a big hill kind of thing, and right after the hill is a stoplight which usually causes a lot of traffic. To the left is a dirt road separated from the street by a ditch. Anyway, as we're waiting in a long line of cars to get past the stoplight, my buddy notices a car driving on the dirt road in the opposite direction we're facing. I'm already a little weirded out at this point because, first of all, I would have seen the car as we were going over the hill, and second of all, I had no idea where it could possibly be going as the dirt road ends at the highway that I just crossed over. I'm going to point out now that it was a pretty distinguishable car, white and kind of old-timey. I don't know enough about cars to name a model or anything. At this point, the light had turned green and I made a left, looking back to see where the car was. It was not on the dirt road, nor in the line of traffic. I looked at my friend in disbelief and he just muttered, what the… I have no explanation for this, and it was pretty unsettling." Adding to these various accounts of vehicles mysteriously disappearing into thin air in plain view is an account that appeared on ThoughtCo and was relayed by a witness calling himself Mike. He claims that in January of 2012, he met up with a friend in Clayton, Victoria, Australia and that he had then headed home later that evening. At the time, it was nearly midnight, and Mike claims that there were no other cars out on the road going in either direction. But as he approached the shopping street, he noticed that there was a vehicle that seemed as if it were fast approaching him from behind. He would say of the strange sequence of events that unfolded, "...as I came up to the Chelsea stops along the road, I noticed in my rear and RHS mirror a vehicle slowly catching up to me, But still at a distance. I thought it odd that he would be slightly speeding, especially through the shopping strip as it has lit up road signs indicating 60 km per hour, which changed to 40 during the day. We have a very low speed tolerance of 3 km per hour over the limit and you cop a fine if caught. I could make out from the streetlights that it was a four-wheel drive and towing a trailer. By the time we had reached the end of the shopping strip, the traffic lights at the intersection still remained green. At this point, as we passed through the intersection, I was expecting the vehicle to be passing me. But glancing in my right-hand side mirror, I could see the vehicle and thought it was a blind spot, so I looked over my shoulder and couldn't see it at all. Now One might think he turned right at the intersection, but at his speed, being 60ish or more, I don't think he'd be able to turn this 90-degree corner in such a vehicle and towing a trailer and he had just begun to gain on my right-hand side by this time. I couldn't comprehend what had just happened. One minute the vehicle has gained on me, and the next… gone. Could I have disappeared these in my mind, or is there simple logic behind it all and just coincidence? So what is going on with reports like these? If they are honest accounts, then what did these people see? Are these just hallucinations? misidentifications or mistakes of perception? Is it perhaps that some illusion has come into effect to merely make it seem as if the vehicle has phased right out of existence? This has been recorded from time to time, such as the remarkably popular video of the vanishing car on YouTube that seems to warp right through a chain-link fence during a police chase to drive off the face of the earth was later explained as having just managed to slip through a gap in the fence and down an incline, which, combined with the darkness, created the illusion that it had simply ceased to exist. Is something like this happening with the cases that we've looked at here as well? Or is this indicative of something more mysterious, such as ghosts, time slips, or visits from parallel dimensions briefly bleeding into our own through some thin spot? Whatever the case may be, Of all of the many strange things that one can see out on the road at night, one that is certain to startle is a car blinking out of existence in an instant, right before one's eyes. This Weekend Archive of Weird Darkness returns in just a moment.
1: Here's an honest question.
0: Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it, you're not alone. Call 1-800-273-8255. They'll show you a way out of your depression, even if you're trying to deal with it through drugs or alcohol. With the FMLA, you can take a leave of absence from your job and return to it once you've found help call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. In my mother's country of birth, it's believed that every home has a spirit protecting it. You could call it a guardian angel or intelligent haunting, it doesn't matter. They're always there. It was my belief that if you feed the house negative energy, they won't protect you in your home, like in a case of a robbery or something, and if you feed your spirit positive energy then you will be safe. I've been living in my parents' home until recently and there are a few experiences I've had in my parents' home growing up over a total of 19 years. My mother's a flight attendant and comes home rather late into the night. Several times when coming home, she would open the door and hear me laughing from down the hall in the bathroom. I was five at the time, so she thought it was weird for me to be out of bed at that time of night. She creeped into the hall to see me sitting on the floor of my bathroom, staring at something in the shower, right out of her view, and laughing like I couldn't even breathe. She had called out to me several times, to which I didn't respond until she shook me. I just looked at her and told her she scared away Stuart. It happened almost every month until I was the age of 10. Some nights I would wake up and look into the hallway from where I laid in my bed. My parents were always paranoid, so I slept with the door open, and I would see a man standing at my doorway. He was tall, taller than the doorframe. I'm guessing seven feet or so, and he would just stand there. He would lean down, poking his head into my room and making sure that I was in my bed. He would usually smile at me and then move down the hall to my brother's room to check on him and then moved into the hallway to my parents' room. Sometimes I would follow him into my parents' room when I was younger and watch him stand over my sleeping parents before disappearing in front of my eyes. When this first started happening to me, I would wake my parents and tell them there was a strange man in the house. But later, I learned it would send my parents into a panic, so I stopped. Growing up, I began naming this spirit Stuart. He would only laugh when I called him that and would do his usual rounds across the house. Stewart would sometimes like to play pranks on my mother, making her drop glasses if she'd made something he wanted to eat. So when we made something good, we would leave out a small plate for him. Sometimes a small portion of the food would be gone. On nights where I couldn't fall asleep or wasn't sleeping right, I would hear my music box go off note that I am a pretty short Asian girl and these music boxes were on the highest shelf in my room. Hadn't been touched since I was three. Stewart's favorite one to set off is my Cinderella Castle music box slash snow globe that sings A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes, only because I think he knows I've always wanted to be a princess. My current boyfriend is also sensitive to spirits. When I first brought him to my parents' house, he found Stuart to be a very kind spirit, like a stocky dad who always smiles and laughs at his children's antics. He's had a couple of experiences with Stuart, but that would be for another time. To this day, when I sleep over or when I come to visit my parents, I'll see Stuart and he'll check in on me in my bedroom before checking on everyone else. I have never felt safer than in that home. I've always had a fascination with the unknown, whether it be paranormal, extraterrestrial or other. Although I was curious, I was also heavily skeptical even when growing up. My father was the opposite, as he would always make jokes about the ghost hunter shows we watched together. When I was 10, I played little league football and my father would always take me to the games. One night we were driving back from one of my games. My mother had come to my game as well, but she drove her own car because she came after work. My brother had rode with her, it was a clear night, not a cloud in the sky, and the moon was full so the road was illuminated well. We were taking a back road shortcut home and drove through a heavily wooded area which blocked the moon's light. The trees were so thick, without our headlights it would have been near pitch black. I was flipping through the radio stations and stopped just in time. If I had looked up a second later, I'd have missed it. I looked up ahead at the road when a glowing ball of light came flying out of the woods from the right side of the road. It flew out right in front of our car and disappeared into the trees to the left side of the road. It took no more than a couple of seconds to cross us and vanish. It was so fast my father didn't even slow down. I was scared, stiff, My father didn't slow down and didn't say a word, so I'd wondered if he'd even seen it. We sat quiet for the next 10 minutes of the drive, when finally my father looked at me and said, did you see that too? I was relieved that I wasn't seeing things, but shocked because of how skeptical dad is of things. The weirdest part is when we got home, my mother had told us that she was driving home and the silhouette of a man ran out into the road and waved his arms frantically. She slammed on her brakes so hard her head got jerked down near her lap, and my brother almost fell into the floorboard of the car. When my mother looked up after stopping, there was no one there. We hadn't told her what we saw before she told us. I still, to this day, do not know what I saw. America's college campuses are viewed as safe places where young people have the opportunity to learn, create, and discover what kind of adults they will become. Every so often, though, violent acts remind us of the vulnerability of college campuses and the young adults who call them home. In 1966, Charles Whitman climbed to the top of a tower at the University of Texas and picked off 15 victims with a rifle. In 1978, one of the most infamous serial killers in history, Ted Bundy, savagely attacked five women on the campus of Florida State University, killing two of them. But not all campus attacks are so widely known. You may find the story of Danny Rowling less familiar. Over a three-day period in August 1990, Rowling terrorized the University of Florida in Gainesville and brutally murdered five students. Rowling was born in Shreveport, Louisiana in 1954 and, as is often the case with multiple killers, endured an abusive childhood, primarily at the hands of his police officer father. Rowling was constantly in trouble with the law as a youngster, and his lawlessness continued into adulthood. He was arrested for crimes ranging from robberies to spying on women getting dressed. He had trouble holding down a steady job, and he spent time in prison. In May of 1990, Rowling got into an intense fight with his father. During a physical altercation, Rowling's father lost his eye and ear. Rowling then traveled to Florida, spending time in Tallahassee and Sarasota before ending up in Gainesville, where in August, he pitched a tent in a patch of woods near the University of Florida. It was in Gainesville that Danny Rowling launched a murder spree, terrifying the large student population of the town. On August 24, 1990, Rowling broke into an apartment shared by Christina Powell, 17, and Sonia Larson, 18. He murdered both young women with a hunting knife, mutilating their bodies and posing them lewdly before he left. The next day, Rowling broke into the apartment of 18-year-old Krista Hoyt. He burglarized her apartment and waited for Hoyt to come home. When she returned, Rowling attacked her, raping and killing the young woman. Rowling decapitated Hoyt and left her severed head on a shelf, facing her headless body. On August 27th, two days after the murder of Krista Hoyt, Rowling broke into yet another apartment in Gainesville, this one belonging to Tracy Pauls and Manny Taboada, both 23 years old. Rowling struggled with Taboada, a 200-pound former high school football player, but eventually killed him, then raped and killed Pauls like his other victims, Rowling posed Paul's body. Students in Gainesville were understandably shaken by the deaths, and with the killer still at large, fear was palpable in the town. The University of Florida shut down for a week. Gun sales soared in Gainesville, and roommates slept in shifts and added extra locks to their windows and doors. Meanwhile, Danny Rowling had left town. Ten days after his last murders, on September 7th, Police arrested Rowling in Ocala, Florida, about 40 miles from Gainesville. The officers there picked up Rowling for robbing a grocery store, and they had no idea that they had a serial killer in their custody. Rowling sat in the jail until January 1991, when investigators from Gainesville started to look into prisoners who had been arrested in other parts of Florida after the student murders. A dentist had removed one of Rowling's teeth while he was in custody in Ocala. The Gainesville task force ordered a DNA test on the tooth and found that it was consistent with DNA evidence left at the scene of one of the murders in Gainesville. Rowling denied he committed the five murders, but after more investigation, he was charged for the crimes. At the start of his trial in 1994, Rowling unexpectedly pleaded guilty to the Gainesville murders, telling the judge, there are some things that you just can't run from. Rowling bragged that his goal was to become a well-known serial killer like Ted Bundy, who had terrorized Florida and many other states over a decade earlier. He was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and borderline personality disorder, and after his trial was sentenced to death for the murders in Gainesville. Investigators also believed Rowling had committed the triple murder of a family, which included an eight-year-old boy in Shreveport in November 1989, but he was never charged with those crimes. While in prison, Rowling created many pieces of art, and he co-wrote a book about his life and crimes titled The Making of a Serial Killer. On October 25, 2006, at the Florida State Prison in Stark, Danny Rowling was executed by lethal injection. He was 52. On April 26, 1865, the body of Abraham Lincoln was making a cross-country trip from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois, where he would ultimately be buried. The body of the fallen president made a tumultuous journey, drawing crowds that numbered into the hundreds of thousands to see the body. It was in New York that a photograph was taken that became the most controversial photo of the president ever taken a post-mortem photograph of Lincoln in his casket. When the Lincoln funeral train arrived in Albany, New York, news of the disquieting incident that occurred with a photographer reached the ears of Edwin Stanton. As was the usual, General Townsend, who was in charge of the funeral train, had telegraphed Stanton when leaving the city to let him know that all was well. But his telegram did not mention what had taken place while Lincoln's remains were on view at City Hall. When Stanton learned of the incident by reading newspapers later that night, he became enraged and dispatched an angry telegram that threatened to ruin the reputation and military career of the man he had personally chosen to command the funeral train. Stanton wrote, I see by the New York papers this evening that a photograph of the corpse of President Lincoln was allowed taken yesterday at New York. I cannot sufficiently express my surprise and disapproval of such an act while the body was in your charge. You will report what officers of the funeral escort were or ought to have been on duty at the time this was done, and immediately relieve them and order them to Washington. You will also direct the Provost marshal to go to the photographer, seize and destroy the plates and any pictures and engravings that may have been made, and consider yourself responsible if the offense is repeated." Stanton ordered Major Eckert at the War Department to make sure that it was sent and hand-delivered to Townsend that very night. Stanton had assumed, no doubt, that close-up images had been made of Lincoln's face. That was not an unusual custom in the 19th century, but Stanton was likely thinking about the condition of Lincoln's body. By the time he was photographed in New York, he had been dead for nine days. Mortuary science of the era could not preserve his body indefinitely. The undertakers attended to the body aboard the train, but there were limits as to what they could do. Stanton undoubtedly feared that horrific images depicting Lincoln's face in a state of gruesome decay would be distributed to the public. Stanton's telegram did not reach Townsend until the morning of April 26th, and he was stunned by its contents and knew how angry Stanton had to be. It was Townsend himself who had allowed Lincoln's corpse to be photographed. He decided before others could report the details of what he had done, to confess and accept the consequences. He immediately telegraphed Stanton and took responsibility for the well-meaning blunder. Stanton calmed down and left Townsend in command. The train was on the move in the middle of a complicated cross-country journey, and no one on the train possessed greater organizational skills than Townsend. He sent him a reply and filled the man with guilt by stating that the taking of photographs had been expressly forbidden by Mrs. Lincoln. Stanton added, "...I am apprehensive that her feelings and the feelings of her family will be greatly wounded." Townsend was upset that it appeared he had disobeyed an order from the martyred president's widow, but even so he had not admitted to all he had done. It was bad enough that he had allowed the photographs. It was even worse that he had posed in the pictures while standing next to President Lincoln's body. Stanton might have considered this perceived attempt at personal publicity unforgivable. But Townsend did not see it that way. The remains had been arranged at City Hall at the head of a stairway, where the people could ascend on one side and descend on the other. The body was in an alcove, draped in black, and just at the edge of a rotunda formed of American flags and mourning drapery. The photographer was in a gallery twenty feet higher than the body and 40 feet away from it. There was no equipment to make the camera seem closer than it was in those days. It offered a distant view. Townsend stood at one end of the coffin and Admiral Davis stood at the other. No one else was in view. The effect of the picture was taking in the scene as a whole, not offering the features of the corpse. General Townsend was not the only one worried about the situation. The man who had photographed Lincoln, Thomas Gurney, proprietor of one of Manhattan's most prominent studios, T. Gurney & Son, was also concerned. He had taken unprecedented, newsworthy, and commercially viable photographs. No other American president had been photographed in death, and no one, not the famous Matthew Brady nor Alexander Gardner, not any of the photographers along the funeral train route, had succeeded in photographing the president in his coffin. Gurney hoped to gain publicity by distributing prints of the photograph to the press as newspaper woodcuts and to reproduce the photo for sale to the public. On April 26, Gurney sent an urgent telegram, not to Stanton, but to a man he thought might be more sympathetic, Assistant Secretary of War Charles A. Dana. Gurney also reached out to Henry Ward Beecher, the widely known clergyman, abolitionist, and author as well as Henry Raymond, the famous editor of the New York Times. He asked them to lobby Stanton and prevent the seizure and destruction of the glass plate negatives. They agreed, and Beecher and Raymond both telegraphed the War Department. It earned Gurney a temporary reprieve of sorts. A telegram from the War Department arrived at Gurney's studio, saving the negatives from destruction for the time being, but only if Gurney surrendered all the glass plates and agreed to abide by Stanton's decision once he determined whether or not to smash them. Gurney surrendered the glass plate negatives, plus all of the photographs that he had already printed from them. He had no choice. In the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination, emotions in the country were running high. Scores of people had been arrested, shot, stabbed, and lynched for making anti-Lincoln statements, During this turbulent time, Gurney had no legal avenue to pursue. If he failed to surrender them voluntarily, the War Department would have raided his studio and seized them. So he complied. The next day, an army general notified Stanton from New York that the offending images were in government custody. Stanton's suppression of the photographs did not succeed entirely. He had wanted to prevent Gurney's images from surfacing in any form, But the photographer had already gotten the prints into the hands of a few artists. At least two newspapers printed front-page interpretations of the scene, and Courier and Ives published a fine engraving based partly on Gurney's work. But Gurney's negatives were never seen again. Perhaps Edwin Stanton had them brought to his office in Washington and, after viewing them, smashed them into pieces. Perhaps he put them away, in some secret place where, to this day, they languish in some dusty and forgotten War Department file box never to be seen again. Stanton could not resist preserving one image of Lincoln's corpse for himself. Almost a century after the President's death and burial, a sole surviving photographic print, made from one of Gurney's negatives, was discovered by a student in an old archive. It was traced back to Stanton's personal files. Perhaps he saved it for history. Or, perhaps, he never intended for it to be seen and to remain his private memento, a vivid reminder of the spring of 1865. If you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all of your social media. Tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. lizzie 815 said so good. I found this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I'm obsessed. The stories, the music, the narration – perfect. I work in an office sitting at a desk all day, and these episodes help make the day fly by. Do yourself a favor and join the weirdos, you won't be disappointed. And then Renegade King from the UK says, hauntingly brilliant. I was recommended this podcast by a workmate a few months ago. Having never really listened to any podcasts before, I was a little skeptical until I pushed the play button and listened to Darren's amazing voice. I've now listened to every Weird Darkness episode from now all the way back to before Christmas 2017. I especially enjoy the pieces written by Troy Taylor. I love the unsolved murder mysteries and detail and research he puts into his writing, which is brilliantly narrated by Darren to bring them to life. I also love the way Darren says, macabre. Amazing stories that will have you looking over your shoulder and giving you goosebumps from the start to finish. Well done, sir. Well done. Signed, Adam Jameson in Scotland. By the way, regarding the word macabre, I wasn't sure what Adam meant by that, so I went online and apparently there are other ways to pronounce macabre. Some people pronounce it macabre or macabra. Um, but here in the States, we just say macabre, so I guess that's what he meant. Thanks to everybody who has been rating the show and posting reviews – I really do appreciate it. I love seeing your thoughts and uh, also it just gives me a a great smile as I start my day when I see those. Another way to support the show is to become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness, patron-only content, and bonus materials including chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or you can visit WeirdDarkness.com and then click on Become a Patron. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Baffling Cases of Cars Vanishing into Thin Air was written by Brent Swancer. The Glowing Ball was written by Taylor B., which was submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. The Gainesville Ripper was written by Matt Gilligan. The Forbidden Portrait of Abraham Lincoln was written by Troy Taylor. Stewart, the House Spirit, was posted at YourGhostStories.com. And The Confession Killers was written by Mark Oliver. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I've got links to all of my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. most of us feel safe in our homes. We consider it to be secure, putting us at ease when we reside there. It's that feeling that makes it a home instead of just a house. But what if the security your home offers is a lie? What if you discover you are not the only one residing in your place of residence, that someone else is living literally within the walls without your consent? In the audiobook Murderous Minds – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines Volume 5, you'll hear terrifying true stories from post-World War Germany to 1930s Hollywood to modern-day Massachusetts that share the fates of individuals and families who missed critical details in their homes, oversights resulting in deadly consequences." Murderous Minds, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines, Volume 5, written by Kelly Gaines and Ryan Becker, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample of the audiobook by clicking the link on the audiobook's page at WeirdDarkness.com.